Hello and welcome to another creator chat from the Internet Creators Guild, an organization that's working to advocate on behalf of the increasingly large number of people who make stuff for a living on the internet. Today, we're talking to Jeffrey Craner, who, along with Joseph Fink, created one of the first, most successful, and most influential fictional podcasts of all time. Welcome to Night Vale. If you don't know about Night Vale, it is a small town in the desert, and it is a very dangerous and creepy place where you do not want to be an intern at a radio station. It's a hilarious, surreal, and horrifying podcast, and it exploded into that world, rapidly changing everyone's minds about what can work in podcasts. Since then, Jeffrey and Joseph have created new shows, gone on live show tours, published books, and started a podcast network. This conversation is Great. We're going to talk about the secret sauce of creative collaboration, how we need to invest in our partnerships and work to maintain healthy relationships. We'll also talk about why they have a PR firm, why they didn't take advertising for the first several years of their podcast, and about this fancy new thing called dynamic insertion. Also, a note, at one point in this podcast, Jeffrey says the word imprimatur, which is a word I did not know and apparently means a person's acceptance or guarantee that something is of good standard. So, now we all know that, and you can go forth into the podcast with that information, and then when he says that word, you'll be like, I know what it means. Everyone, let's chat with Jeffrey Craner. Hello, Jeffrey. Hi, Hank. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, let's see. Um, okay, it was a long night. Oren is sick, so I have not had the proper amount of sleep. But hopefully I can still podcast with uh, with some capability. You sound pretty capable right now. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's, I think that's what we all need to hear. Can you just say that to everybody else out there too? Everyone out there, you're very capable. In fact, more so. Even more so than like they were or than I am? Um, well, listen, I think that's a pretty good Tell compliment that if at any moment you're more capable than Hank Green at something. So let's just say for a short time, you're more capable than Hank Green, which is saying a lot. Hank is quite capable. <laughs> that's very sweet of you. There are definitely times in which everyone uh, is more capable than I am at some times because I, getting out of bed this morning was a challenge. Sure. Um, he's, he slept just fine after 2.30. Uh, so then, then it was like, okay, well, we're all going to sleep. And then he was still sleeping. And I was like, but it's get up time for me. And that's a disaster. It's you're a total, total jerk. You little two year old. Uh, <laughs> so, so Jeffrey, you do a lot of different stuff. Um, and I honestly do not know what you were doing before you started having a weirdly successful, one of the first successful narrative, uh, fiction podcasts. And I, I have no idea what you're doing before that. Uh, I was, uh, I was doing theater in New York city, maybe, th uh, theater, maybe performance art is the way to describe it. I moved to New York in 2006 and, uh, from Massachusetts and, um, I joined a theater company there called the New York Neo Futurists. Uh, it's a theater company that I had seen in Chicago. They've been running there since 1988. And I'd seen them in Chicago before. Uh, and it was such an amazing show and such a cool aesthetic. Then they were having auditions like my first month there. So I auditioned and managed to get in the company. And uh, and so I was I did that from 2006 till about 2013 uh, was most of the like artistic mm -hmm. work I was doing. Uh, my wife, Jillian, 
is a dancer as well, a modern dancer and choreographer. And so also during that time, she and I collaborated on a few pieces together. So I was doing a lot of writing and directing. And with the Neo Futurists, we do a lot of short plays and we write new stuff every week. So it was always kind of mm-hmm. on this constant deadline to create and make and right. make things that are timely and true. And uh, yeah, and so that was the, the late night show I was doing most weekends uh, during that time. I mean, that sounds like a super high paying job, avant-garde theater <laughs> and choreography um, in, in New York City in 2006. I'm sure that you were bringing home the bacon. Was there... Was there a way you were paying bills or was that it? No, I uh, I had a I had a really actually it was a really great job. I had a full time job at Film Forum, which is a not for profit art house cinema in lower Manhattan. Mm. And I was their database manager for their fundraising office. Uh, It was a great gig. Uh, I really loved it a lot. The people there were fantastic. I got to see movies for free and they do they do premieres of new artsy films and then they also do repertory uh like retrospectives so there there might be a mm-hmm. whole like kurosawa retrospective or yep. french new wave or something like that so i got mm-hmm. to see a lot of movies for free uh mm-hmm. a lot of lunch times were just spent uh up in the projector room just kind of like eating microwaved pasta and watching you know 45 minutes of a film and then heading back to work uh, but it was a very nine, like literally a nine to five job. It was, uh, you know, get mm-hmm. in in the morning, leave in the early evening. And then I had my nights free to do rehearsals and writing and things like that. So I'm very curious about in new media, we we are just starting to get people who are gathering together to do something different without any monetary goal. Um, of course, there have always been independent people like like one person doing a thing that they like. Um, and not caring whether they make money doing that. But but groups of people, the way that theater works and the way that the neo-futurists works, because this is still a, a thing that's happening. Yeah. Um, and uh, like that, it feels like that that is such a, a different way and also a great way and also like a way of making something that is, is you couldn't do on your own one, but also that maybe is a little bit more rewarding because you're getting the feedback from the other people and also um, maybe even has sort of a higher chance of like establishing itself as an independent aesthetic than something that when you're doing it all on your own because ultimately we can only bring our own perspective and so having more perspectives is cool. Um, I, like, I, Do you have any thoughts as to why that you know happens in theater and like in more sort of like old school forms of media, but not in, not in this new one. I mean, I, I, I think some of it just has to do with that theater is live, you know, that you have to be around people. You can't, you know, with podcasting, uh, or vlogging or blogging or, uh, mm-hmm. being funny on Twitter or whatever it is you're doing for your artistic aesthetic. A lot of that you can do by yourself and you can do it at home. And your audience is not with you, you know, like literally in the room with you. Mm-hmm. And theater it has to be communal. It, it, it requires that. Like you don't really have theater unless you have at least one other person listening or watching you. <laughs> and uh, so, um, yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it. And then, and then you know, theater also, you know, requires more than just a storyteller. You know, I... I I guess you could argue that you could just go stand somewhere on a, on a street corner and start talking and that's technically theater, but you know, you, you need lighting designers, you need people to help with sound and you need people Mm -hmm. to help with set design and costumes and 
you need people, oftentimes the people who write and the people who perform will be different and you need an outside eye to help direct that. So it's like television in the sense that like you can't just have one person doing it. So you do all kind of have to come together and sort of like the role that you fill in whatever Mm -hmm. theatrical production you're doing. I always kind of said with, um, you know, I grew up in the, in the church in the Christian church. Um, and then, you know, kind of by college, I had sort of fallen out of love with that and I don't really ever go to church anymore, but uh, in a lot of ways, like theater sort of fulfilled the same thing that I think church fulfills Mm -hmm. for a lot of people, which is it's a community and it's a thing that you come together, you know, that, we're not doing this necessarily for the money, uh, although there's a career bent to theater that may not be there for church, but it's really about community. It's about having a set of friends uh, with with similar ideas and that want to work on the same things. Yeah, and I mean, in when, when you started Night Vale, I mean, I'm assuming that this was in sort of the same vein where there wasn't so much a goal of how are we going to pay everybody a living wage to do this, but like more a creative, we are going to collaborate and try to make a thing that is different and that will resonate with people. And uh, because like from the beginning, it wasn't just one person doing Night Vale because the, first of all, the voice was different than the writers. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. It was, uh, it, it, it definitely started off as as a collaboration and, and an extension of Joseph and I wanting to write together and Cecil wanting to do more, more voice work. And mm-hmm. uh, John Bernstein's music uh, kind mm-hmm. of already existed in the world, and wanting to work with him to to make more to make more music for the show, and so that that's yeah, it's exactly the the spirit of of what that was. It, it was also to to bring it back to theater. The great thing about podcasting is that it's way cheaper than theater, so something we could make a lot more of. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that was uh, that was really fantastic as well. Yeah, and. Was there any sense from the beginning that like, uh, how are we going to share in the uh, success of this? Um, And then as it became more successful, was there, you know, was there any frustration about how that would be controlled slash how success would be distributed? Is that a fair, a safe way of saying that? Do you know what I mean? No, I, I, um, you know, Joseph and I, from the get go, like we didn't really ever talk about money. It was more about responsibility because there was no money to be had. But as we started figuring Mm -hmm. out where there, you know, could we have a listener supported show? uh, You know, uh, uh, could we sell some merchandise, things like that? Uh, Once, once that got down, we, once we thought about avenues of revenue, uh, then that that became the discussion with with uh, uh, with Cecil to talk about. Well, we're all three sort of working on this, and we can you know uh, working on this directly. At the time, John wasn't working on it; he just uh, had contributed his music to the show that had already mm-hmm. been written years earlier. So the uh, you know the Joseph Cecil and I just sort of took it uh, took the angle of like rather than paying you Cecil as a as a talent. Uh, separate from the writers that you're you're a collaborator on this like right you're shaping this character we may be writing the words but you're sort of making the character and so the three of us just were like whatever we get from the show we can just split three ways and that was sort of kind of the the initial uh Mm -hmm. way in which we just sort of agreed upon that that we're we're all just we're all three just sort of like help we all three help create the show we're all sort of partners in creating that and then from from then on once we started live shows it was really important joseph and i agreed from the beginning that it was important to people pay people for live shows and Mm -hmm. uh, if they could make money and and once we started booking our first tours 
we realized like we are, you know, we're selling, you know, we our very first tour date was at the Neptune in Seattle and we sold out two shows in a, for a night. And so that's, that's 1400 people coming to see your show. Uh, and so at yeah. that point you're like, well, yeah, we need to pay at least scale, uh, for anybody mm-hmm. in the show. So, you know, so all of the actors and musicians and anyone who comes, uh, to do our work, it was very important that we make sure that anybody creating something for our show or performing something for our show is paid for that. What is scale? I don't know what scale is. It, it sort of varies when I ask people because uh, people no, what are. What is li- the idea? What is oh, the, what oh, that oh just mean? like trying to uh, just trying to like uh, scale. I just use metaphorically to be like if I was in a touring production of Fiddler on the Roof, going to all the the music halls around the country. Like, what would I be paid for my part? Right. And mm-hmm. so we are trying to make sure we understood like whatever. Whatever your uh, not SAG, what is uh, act- actors' equity based pay would be mm-hmm. uh, that we're at least paying that. I mean, I'm asking these questions because I'm really interested in how to build collaborative projects. I think that these days it is hard to be solely independent, and that we we see a lot of success among small groups of people who are working together productively and all feel invested in the project. Um, and don't feel like one person is in charge and telling them what to do. Because ultimately, when you're starting on a new thing, you can't pay people, you can't have a team of three people and be paying all of them $40,000 a year. Because <laughs> like, unless you're just rich, like there's no way to do it. So coming in and being like, I'm going to be in charge of this, and I'm going to own it. And you're all going to work for me for free until it starts making money. That doesn't work. So right. having some way of like, starting this out, uh, as a collaborative effort and everybody knowing that they are going to be part of the success if the success happens um, is important slash not even thinking of it that way. Whereas I think money has come so fast and so hard into digital media that, that there is this idea that there's a lot of money out there when there really isn't right. most of the time. Yeah. Like, you know, like I get asked all the time, like, how much money do YouTubers make? And I'm like, well, Lady Gaga is a YouTuber, right? Like right. what, like, you know, BuzzFeed is a YouTuber and all those people just get paid salaries. And uh, lots of YouTubers make $10,000 a year and then have other jobs. And it it takes a lot of fucking views if you're just getting AdSense to, to turn into to turn into like a living wage. Yeah. So figuring out how, so part of me is thinking like how, how to create content for the love of creating the content with the hope, but not the expectation that someday there will be like a monetary reward, but that's not the point. Not that I think that like people should necessarily be working their butts off for no money, but like, just like with the neo-futurists, like it is fun to build things and be a part of a community that creates stuff. It is good and human and I like it. And also it can lead to building of skills that can can eventually become maybe some part of something else that becomes your vocation and your work. Yeah, I think you have to start from the, you have to love doing something and you have to be willing to want to do something for free. You know, so many artists I know, mus- so many musicians I've met, uh, mm-hmm. you know, got their start as kids, like the, that their parents owned a piano or had some old guitar that nobody was playing with and sort of taught themselves that I know some audio people that had cassette players growing up and they just yeah. learned the insides of magnetic, uh, these magnetic tape cassettes, <laughs> like inside and yeah. out and played around with them and, and figured out different weird sounds to make with them. And, 
Um, and I think, you know, I don't think you have to start as a kid to want to be an artist. Like, I don't think you're mm-hmm. far behind. I think you can start as an adult. Uh, but I think it's the thing where you have to, if you're a writer, you have to enjoy writing. And then you find other people that also enjoy writing and you want to work with them. And that was my relationship to Joseph. And uh, I liked making theater and I liked being on stage. And I found other people who liked that, too, and found my way into that group in the neo-futurists. I think the other thing you have to to know about the collaborative process is that 90% of art is actually just administrative work. And it's just mm-hmm. so much of that is whether you're trying to sell tickets, whether you're trying to put together a fundraiser gala type of thing, whether you're trying to just uh, you know, rent a space and make sure you have everything and you have a budget and uh, or you're planning a tour, uh, you know, all of those things, uh, those are really vital parts of that. And I think for collaboration, uh, as you said, you know, having a system where it doesn't feel like one person is in charge, like one person hires everyone and says, you're my underlings, do this, but you have everybody contributing. Everybody also kind of has to find a role within that collaboration, too. You know, so Mm -hmm. early on with Joseph and I making Welcome to Night Vale, you know, when we started touring, you know, Joseph and I sort of split up the tasks of like Joseph would handle all of the technical stuff and talking to the actors and direction. And I would handle all of the front of house uh, sort of tour managing stuff and ticket sales Mm -hmm. and ushers and stuff uh, before we had a booking agent and we were just flat renting venues and we had to hire ushers and things Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you sort of know that, then it gives you a very specific responsibility within that, some specific part that you're in charge of and you can communicate that to everyone else. And it makes you feel, you know, beholden to other people. It makes you want to get more done because you realize I have a specific thing, everything uh, that everyone is counting on me for. So I have to do this. How do you define that? Like, (laughs) and also before we get to how to define it, how do you accept it and, and, and feel okay with the decisions that are being, being made and not not ever feel like anybody's being taken advantage of. That's that's a big concern that I have generally. And I and a lot of times what I see is that people who are able to do this are literally siblings. Like so so with me and John, it's like, well, we have this first order responsibility that is not the video blog, it's the brotherhood. And so like we trust each other because of that. And ultimately we have to maintain that relationship above and beyond this other thing. There is also people who have been friends for a very long time, like since childhood who do this. But it's it's usually what I've seen, it is like Rhett and Link were friends in like second grade. The Gregory brothers are brothers. The Fine brothers are brothers. Uh, like the Green brothers, there's a lot of brothers. The Carlin brothers are brothers. Um, and and I like I wonder, you, are, you and Joseph are an amazing example of two people who did not like you're not blood related you did not grow up together but you established this uh this partnership this collaboration that has held firm and i've i have not witnessed though i'm sure there are as there always are tensions um and how do you deal with those tensions as they arise but also how why do you think that you haven't been you know torn apart by them in the way of so many um you know rock bands over the years I mean, I think the 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 siblings thing is is really. Uh, I think that's a great way of putting it. And and uh, yeah, I I think Joseph and I treat each other like 
brothers or like a married couple or something, you know, from mm-hmm. the get go, when we first started writing together, even before Night Vale, we, we wrote and produced and performed a play together in New York City. And you realize like, okay, well, this is a year long project to put this play together. And then when Night Vale started, we realized, well, this is just ongoing. And you, you decide, well, now I'm, I'm married to this person or I'm in a relationship <laughs> to this person. And yeah. You know, I, I I really don't think it's that far off. You know, I I don't even think that I'm I'm really joking about that. Is that like, yep. you know, when you're you're married, you you have your spats and you have your your disagreements and you have your kind of maybe heated moments that don't need to be heated, but that's just where somebody's at at the point. And yeah, and I think that you just have to you learn those parts about somebody and you realize what's most important is this relationship with each other. And and once you have that level of respect, you're you're willing to kind of do whatever uh, to to sort of make that right. And there are some things that can't be overcome, and that's fine too. Um, you just know that going into it. So, you know, Joseph and I had some kind of emotional discussions on on our very first tour, um, <laughs> and and uh, you know, it's just it was hard. Tour, tour is a time of emotional discussions. <laughs> it it all comes out on tour. And just <laughs> even today, knowing what we're doing on tour, tour can get emotional. Uh, yeah. But back then, none of us had any idea what we were doing. And so mm-hmm. it was super emotional. And, you know, and the thing that we have both, uh, we've, we both took the time to do on a couple of those early tours was just to like turn to the other person and uh, say, are you doing okay? You, you look upset. And then they will say, no, one of us might say no. And then we would sort of mm-hmm. talk through like, why are you mad? And it's like, well, I'm mad at you because this is how I'm feeling. And this is what I'm going through. <laughs> and yeah. and the, it gives the other person to say, well, okay, I, I hear that. And you know, they're, what I'm they're... hearing from you is that you have to be highly emotionally intelligent, which is just—it's <laughs> not. I don't know that it's something that that necessarily uh, comes with practice. Like, maybe, it's, maybe that's, that's hard it. stuff. Let me back up. Let me say you just have to be very lucky and just find somebody else who's super emotionally balanced and emotionally intelligent. <laughs> so, yeah. So Joseph is the is the balanced one. No, I think we're both very balanced okay. uh, in in different ways. I mean, I think I'm a much more emotional person than Joseph mm. is. Uh, in okay. terms of like outwardly expressing it. Uh, yeah. And that's just, you know, as I've gotten older, I've gotten better at managing that. But um, and and Joseph, Joseph is much more business minded and logical and has a he's very even all the time. Like I I've very mm-hmm. rarely seen Joseph like really upset about something. Um, yeah. Or he's, he's the sort of person who will, who will say to you, I'm really upset about this. Yes. Yeah. And a very sort of like. But I'm glad that you said that because there would have been no other way for me to know. Mm-hmm. That's the right. only – I've got some friends like that who I'm just like, I really need you to tell me because I cannot read this. <laughs> I do I, – like nothing on this face is telling me any information. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I, and I, I think it's a balance. I'm uh, – you know, and I, I maybe if, if I'm going to – do the Joseph is like this. I'm like this. I, I think I'm more uh, a more patient person than Joseph. While mm. I say I'm very emotional, I, I I tend when I'm when I'm when I'm sort of in a most of the time I'm in a state of just taking things in and not reacting. Um, I can be very patient with a lot of different types of people, and yeah. as long as they're willing to give me some, at least let me know that they're hearing me. They don't have to agree with me mm-hmm. or want to do what I'm asking them to do. Uh, but I'm just asking that they hear about it and take it with them. And so, 
and then come back to me later. And, you know, when you work with I, I say when you work with actors or theater people, it, it can be a lot of a lot of folks that that are sort of can be up and down. But I, I don't know. I've worked in business offices my whole life and people are like that too. I just don't think we have the words to say that in the way we do with actors. Interesting. So what I'm what I'm hearing is that that like one portion of it is work. Like you have to work at it, think about it, be careful with it. It's a project. It's a it's an endeavor that you have to invest in like any other. And then also there's an element of luck. Like if it was a different guy or a different person, it probably would not have worked out yeah. as well as it did with you and Joseph. Yeah. Um, I think going back to the relationship analogy too, is yeah. that just like when you're looking to meet somebody uh, and you really <laughs> want to meet somebody, um, yeah. you know, and I think as an artist, I've always loved collaborating because it, it, it one, it takes some of the workload off and, and yep. two, uh, you know, maybe some of it is insecurity. I don't know. We can ask my therapist about that. And, uh, you know, you want uh, the imprimatur of somebody else uh, saying, yes, this is good. But um you know, some of it's just, I like having good relationships with good people. And when you, there are certain times you get into a collaborative relationship with another artist or group of artists and you kind of real, it's kind of fun at first. And then three months in, you're like, oh man, I don't like this. Like, this is, this is not my future here. Mm-hmm. And and then you want to, you want to get out and do something else and, uh, and try a different type of thing. And that, that's completely understandable. But there is a point when you do kind of feel like, well, I do want to settle down. I mean, I do want to find regular <laughs> people to yeah. work with. And you have to take in all the imperfections. You know, you can't just say, well, you know what I'd like to be doing is I'd like to be making like blockbuster Hollywood films. <laughs> you know, it's just it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to oh, really God. like doing what you do and whatever level of monetary success or fame that comes from that is really impossible to control. Yeah, not impossible. It's difficult to to yeah to to set exactly what you're going to get. Yeah, what what I will say, having witnessed and been friends with people who have had various successes occur to them, is that it's not something that happens because you want it, but it won't happen unless you want it, mm-hmm. and uh, with very rare exceptions. And also, um, it never happens the way you think it will ever. Nope. It's not, you never set out and you're like, here's the plan. And then you follow the plan and you achieve it. It's like you set out and you're like, here's the plan. And then two days in, you're like, change the plan. (laughs) (laughs) That's those are the the only pieces of advice I have re, uh, success, whatever that is. Yeah. It's that, that idea of you, uh, my my belief is just like head down and do your work, you know, like, um, mm. you know, uh, you know, en- yeah, enjoy yeah. your time to do it. You know, relationships are work. But the great thing is, like, I don't get to be on vacation with my wife every day. You know, there's most of our days are like cleaning cleaning the house or, you know, like being yeah. like questions about like, wait, I don't understand. What is this transaction on the bank statement? Like, what was it for? And <laughs> like, wait, you didn't, why didn't yeah. you call the propane people? Like our, our tank is at 20% and winter starts yeah. next week. So there's, that's most of it. It's work. Um, you know, it's work with someone you love and someone mm-hmm. you really, really have a great time. But then, you know, a couple times a week, Jillian and I managed to just kind of like, you know, get get on the couch together and watch a TV show. And sometimes it's great British bake off. And there's very few things better than that. And then, um, 
hopefully once a year we get to go on a vacation together someplace yeah. and and really just like take in the sights and have some wine and relax and chill out and bike and hike and those things are kind of what make mm -hmm. it all worth it and the same thing with collaboration like you got to you got to set office hours for yourself you got to get your writing done you have to edit you have to sort of take in input you got to do budgets you have to figure out timing of everything and uh and then one day you get to you get to like put on a show and <laughs> one day you get to like <laughs> post ho uh, post a bunch of episodes and people online respond to that and you feel good about it usually yeah. and uh and that's uh those are the things you live for but yeah. There's a lot of work that goes into ultimately just getting to post a 25 minute Night Vale episode and then have maybe about two dozen comments over the next three days come in and be like, I love your show. And you're like, great. Mm -hmm. That's what I did this yep. for. I did it. They liked the thing. Yeah. And it is. Yeah, it's a it's a great gift to be able to get feedback on our creative endeavors at all. Um, but so in among that bunch of lovely stuff you just said. And also at various times throughout this podcast, we've talked about administrative stuff and booking agents and booking your own tours and hiring ushers um, and all that, <laughs> all that things that and doing taxes and all these things that we didn't necessarily think was the job when we set out to do the job. A lot of people have assistants or managers or something to do that work for them. Do, do you have... Do you have infrastructure, people who help you with booking shows, people who help you with doing the, the you know, profit and loss yeah. Yeah. Uh, projections and all that stuff? Um, now we do for most of that. Uh, yeah. You know, we had to, you know, we definitely have a, we have a lawyer that handles like contracts with people and we have a, we have a, a you know, we have a, a, an accountant that does all of our taxes that handles both the Nightville Presents network accounting uh mm -hmm. and then the uh and then me and joseph's personal accounting because both of us all, our income is almost mostly tied into <laughs> night vale presents yeah. uh -huh. so uh you know and then it made a big difference getting uh once we started writing novels getting a literary agent and getting uh getting a booking agent to help with tours uh, mm -hmm. you know, we have a staff at Nightvale Presents. So we have a Joseph and I have a producing partner named Christy Gressman, uh, who handles a lot of the production side of all of these shows that that get made and kind of is sort of looking to sort of be somewhat of a visionary type of person for the company of like thinking through new ideas for shows and partnerships and collaborations and working with ad sale, ad sales and things like that. So she's kind of the glue of the company administratively uh, and on the production side. And then we have a, a, a marketing director and a guy named Adam Cecil who handles merch and, and marketing and mm -hmm. PR and stuff for us. And we also mm -hmm. have a separate PR firm that handles press releases and trying to get coverage for our shows and things like that. The PR firm isn't paid all the time? They're paid monthly. Uh, no matter okay. what. Yeah. So we we, oh, wow. we we pay them monthly to kind of ongoing for the network. We had started with trying to pay PR people um, just to do on a project by project basis, but we were getting such little return off of that. And yeah. it was sort of frustrating because what was happening was we were mostly, we weren't finding that with firms, with people who have kind of like deeper deeper Rolodexes, if that's still a valid reference to make. <laughs> um, yep. But, you know, we were finding more like freelance type of type of people and they, 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 
did a, a, a decent job, but it was just, it was the stop and start. We weren't getting any momentum with them. And, um, and so ultimately decided we're just going to have to cough up the money to, to have somebody uh, on full time. And you do see a return from that. We do see a return from that. It's one of those things where I'm like, it's like healthcare. Like, I'm not sure if, if it's worth the money, but it's, it is because we couldn't not have it. <laughs> I don't. So, so the goal mostly is to sell tickets to shows. Yeah, most is uh, well to sell tickets to shows and also to get coverage of you know to try and get news coverage of of our of the podcasts we make you know to try and okay. make sure that people are talking about our shows and podcasts and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and the way it, it pays off every now and then you get something like uh you know when Dylan Marin launched conversations with people who hate me, we got a he got a feature in the New York Times on that, which was fantastic, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. something I would not have probably been able to to generate on my own or right. we on our own. Um, you know, there was something like the guardian was doing a, a not podcast related feature of, about, uh, the idea of, it was just in art about how people, uh, use, they sort of set up, uh, something that looks like nonfiction, but ultimately it turns out to be a fiction story. And, uh, and they, you know, our PR people got in touch with them and, and they, I talked to them about Within the Wires because the podcast Within the Wires poses as a nonfiction podcast and, and in turn is actually fiction. So it's mm-hmm. little bits like that where you just you have somebody who gets you in. They, they know what stories are being written somewhere and they, they find writers to sort of find a way to talk about the stuff that you're doing and however that manifests. Uh, and those are things I just would have never been able to do on my own. That is all a big black mystery box to me, mm-hmm. but it sounds it sounds like something that uh, that maybe I should think more about. Though I'm not currently trying to sell much of anything. Um, <laughs> the so you just talked a bunch about your some of your other projects. So Dylan Marin doing conversations with people who hate me. You've got uh, new podcast that you're doing. You also have Nightvale presents as a network that has incorporated existing podcasts under its umbrella. What is that thing, and what does it do? <laughs> um, <laughs> what is and it? Why did you do? And why did you do it? <laughs> what is it you say you do around here? Um, <laughs> we uh, so when Joseph and I started Night Vale, we came at it from being people who were making theater in New York City, and we uh, just did it because we liked working together. But the thing was, is at the time in 2011, when we first started talking about making the show, this podcast, we sort of felt like we're coming to podcasting late <laughs> because it just felt so full <laughs> of people yeah. at the time. And most of the people you. were public radio or uh-huh. just radio people or comedians. And, uh, mm-hmm. neither, and j- it was hard for me to imagine when Joseph first posited the idea because I couldn't think about like, I don't even I don't even know where we would fit in because neither of us can do improv. Neither of us are really comics um, and we have no radio experience. So I'm not sure what this will be. And uh, so, uh, you know, there was an outsider feeling coming into it when we made Welcome to Night Vale. Like we had a lot of uncertainty. I had a lot of uncertainty about whether or not it would ever take off because there wasn't anything sure. like it. And um oh, yeah. So later, you know, a couple, you know, fast forward a couple of years, like in early 2015, Joseph and I were talking about these other podcast ideas we, we had, 
and Joseph was talking about making the show Alice Isn't Dead, and I was talking about making the show Within the Wires, and uh, we were both like, yeah, cool, this this will be nice that you and I both have these other projects that we're working on separately, and that's going to be cool. And then he just, he had the idea of like, well, it feels like we should maybe compact it into like a network so that we can use the the, the weight of Welcome to Night Vale and the larger audience, because I feel like if we're making these other shows, the listeners of Welcome to Night Vale would be very interested to know about that. So we should use Night Vale to promote these other two shows um, and kind of spread the, the 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 joy there and maybe try and get advertising for once and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, we mm-hmm. met uh, the fo- uh, Christy Gressman who, and, and Julian Coster who make uh, The Orbiting Human Circus of the Air. And uh, we just thought the podcast was so brilliant. We were like, let's make that our first show that we bring on that's not mm-hmm. me or Joseph. And uh, yeah, so that was the idea of the network of of you just kind of that classic sense of people, you know, groups, you know, shows promoting each other, all that we feel like those audiences overlap heavily. So it's just making sure the audiences are aware these exist and drawing our Night Vale audience over to say, listening to relaxation cassettes on within the wires or listening to this like really fantastical old timey radio musical type of thing on orbiting human circus. And um, yeah, and that was the idea. And then we thought based on our experience making welcome to night Vale and feeling like outsiders, cause we weren't podcast people, we weren't radio or com- comedian type people. And uh, we wanted to make, we thought, well, the mission of the network seems to be to like find people who would make awesome storytellers in the podcasting medium and try and help them develop podcasts. And so that's really why mm-hmm. we started that. Do you help with development? Do you help with like um, like funding or, or, or like resources in terms of editing and production and stuff? We do uh, because everybody's sort of at a different place. You know, Joseph and I both had a lot of sound editing experience and Night Vale and Within the Wires are fairly simple in terms of just the editing that goes into them. Uh, Mm -hmm. so other shows like it makes a sound, which kind of evolves into a full on musical by the end. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of moving parts to a show like that. And Jacqueline Langraf, the writer of that show, uh, you know, really had no experience with, you know, uh, recording or mixing or editing sound. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it, it was sort of incumbent on us to, as part of this reaching out to people and helping them develop that is to not just say, well, uh, here's the link to download audacity and here's a $65 USB mic. Have fun. It was, uh, yeah. Finding studio time for them, hiring an editor for them to work with them and, and collaborating with, uh, with people like that on, on, on how to, what they need. Actually, let me say this, finding out what they need to know from us and how, what, they could use our help on and then adding that help to them. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you also very interestingly with, with Night Vale, which um, I imagine is the still the sort of like, like flagship property um, have never done advertising, right? We do now. Uh, oh, okay. We, for a long time did not do it. Um, right. But we, we, we do now. Uh, we don't, uh, our big holdup really had to do with, I think a lot of us, we just didn't trust the ad companies very early on. Like I just, it was, we were just, it was such an independent project that we were just like, you know, <laughs> down with capitalism. Like, I just don't know what you're going to do to this. Um, yeah. And also because we still don't do any mid rolls on 
Welcome to Night Vale. So we never wanted to interrupt the show and say like, yeah, here's the thing about Squarespace. Uh, we, in fact, wanted to write fake Squarespace ads instead. Well, I, I always thought that if I were, if like as a, you know, a fan and a, a avid listener to, to every episode of Night Vale during a certain part of my life, I always was like, man, if I was like Jiffy Lube, I would totally want a fake Jiffy Lube ad and I would pay you to make a Jiffy Lube ad about how like, you know, whatever, I, the absurdist Night Vale humor around Jiffy Lube. And that would be 100% worth it to me. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that actual marketing people would feel that way. We, um, yeah, I, we were always sort of open to that. If somebody wanted to pay for like a, a one-off ad, we would be totally mm-hmm. down for that. And, uh, but the stipulation had to be that we had 100% total control. Oh, yeah of yes. what it was and um yeah. and they could refuse and then take their money and we would be fine with that um okay. but that was basically kind of the deal and I, I will say this we did a fake ad in the first couple of years of the show maybe in the first year of the show uh we did a fake ad for a for a real company and it was a really depressing ad if i remember like it's very existential like it's very like staring at the sky and nothing matters like what yeah. is what is this this puny life and small effect I have on the universe. Um, mm-hmm. And the, that company reached out to us. They're like, this is amazing. Like we absolutely want to do something with you guys and we want to do paid sponsorship and everything. And it really, it ultimately broke down because it was going to require that we use social media to kind of like have conversations with their brand and things like that. And we were mm-hmm. just like, there's a level of authenticity that we're falling below if we do that. And I just, I can't take that money. It's very sweet of you, but uh, I'm I'm really glad you (laughs) like the ad, but uh, free of charge. (laughs) Uh, So here here it is. You can put it in your bank if you ever want to use that for something else. (laughs) Right. Uh, So you, so you do advertising now and is that part of the business of your network? It is. Yeah. It, uh, you know, that it's, it's an, it's a revenue stream for maintaining a a network of shows, uh, you know, some like Welcome to Night Vale are fairly self-sustaining, especially with touring and, and merchandise and listener support. Um, but others like, uh, you know, Within the Wires or It Makes a Sound have a much smaller audience. They, you know, they fill a different niche. They're they're very like interesting sub-sub-genre of something. And uh, and they're really good artistically. They're really great. And they have a really, a really avid fan base for however small it is. But, you know, that those things like being able to network wide with 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 PRX now, we, we have dynamic insertion and have like geo-targeting. So we can have advertisers come in and be like, well, this ad will go on this episode of these smaller things and we can distribute ads across all of these smaller shows because we know the demographics and we know where people live. So we can just put these ads in certain regions and things like that. So it is a way to kind of help support all of these shows and kind of keep the, the doors open. Can you explain dynamic insertion to me? Because uh, because in the world of online video, it's just the thing that happens. Yeah. You, in pop, yeah. it was impossible until like a year ago. Yeah, because so the, so the old school style, so the two terms I hear is dynamic insertion and baked in. And baked in is just where, like, you just record a thing and it's part of the actual episode. So, like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, all of our early stuff and with within the wires, uh, there's you if there's an ad to be sold, it's usually right in the middle. And uh, so in the uh, the first couple seasons of that, if, say, like, Casper bought an ad, 
I could record that ad and then just in the audio file, just insert it between those two halves of the show and then upload that as one big file. With dynamic insertion, it's a, it's it's some it's a whole software get up and database get up to where I record an ad now. Uh, say I record a quip ad and say, here's this awesome electric toothbrush. And then I send it to PRX and it goes in into the system. And so what I do now is I upload two different with, uh, within the wires files. I have a first half and a second half. And if there's an ad to be sold, they pop one in there. And it's mm-hmm. nice. It's very convenient because it makes it to where the you can pull an ad out once that deal is done uh mm-hmm. and be done with it you don't have to go through and re-erase you know erase old ones and put whatever and uh yep. for things like welcome to night vale sometimes people are really interested in advertising on the first 10 episodes because it's a <laughs> it's a serial fiction show it's not it's not dated in the way that if we did a show about current politics you know that nobody's going to be going back to 2012 to be like let me listen to this but people will for night veil so it's really not dynamic insertion is nice because we don't have to go through and erase all the old ads and upload brand new files for 100 episodes or whatever the downside is you you lose that sort of immediacy of it you know right that feeling so here hank and john we have this this problem right now where we've just started doing dynamic insertion whereas before we did it um, we would just re- like, we'd be talking and then we'd do the ad and then we'd ref like while we were reading the ad, we'd reference things we said in the episode. And then later on in the episode, we'd reference things we said in the ad. So it all felt like one big hunk. And now it's like, and ad break, and this is going to be a separate thing. And we're not like, we're going to try to make it feel like it's interesting still, yeah. but also you might hear it on other episodes. You might hear the same Hank and John bantering about this product like three episodes in a row. Yeah, I I miss that old style of doing that. Uh the McElroys do a really great job on Bim Bam of mm-hmm. of uh just kind of going to the money zone and then talking about this this product and kind of riffing on it kind of with the same momentum of the show. It was funny, uh I'll sometimes go and listen to old Night Vale episodes when I'm writing new Night Vale episodes. It's nice to get a refresher right. on characters. But a, mm-hmm. a little while back, I had downloaded uh, last December, we posted an episode that took place in the town of Desert Bluffs. And it was this whole episode called All Smiles mm-hmm. Eve. And for those who don't know about the, uh, that uh, that through line of Night Vale and Desert Bluffs, they're very big into like smiling all the time that they believe that just smiling itself makes you happy. There's an obsession with teeth. There's a lot of like body horror type of components to it. It's really gross. Anyways, the the whole, the whole episode ends with this really disgusting thing about teeth and like somebody cutting their, their mouth wider to smile bigger. Like it's really scary and horrible and horror laden. And it's about teeth. And then the episode ends and then suddenly a quip ad came on and I was like, Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> that was perfect. But I thought it's not oh, bad God. to have a quip ad there. In fact, it's perfect. It's just that because it wasn't baked right. in, if it were baked in, we absolutely would have had Meg reading that ad of like, well, as long as we're talking about smiles um, <laughs> and the perfect smile, but it's sort of unfortunate that there's that disconnect. And I, I mean, I hope people listening to that episode were as tickled by it as I was, but mm-hmm. yeah. So yeah, you do, you do lose a little bit of that momentum and immediacy. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is having a project like Night Vale that is narrative. So a lot of people start at the beginning and there is a lot of it. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that like the average Night Vale listener or even the average like attendee to one of your live shows doesn't listen to every episode, maybe hasn't even listened in a while. 
how what what's that like? Because I also am in this world a little bit where I'm aware that mostly when people stop me on the street, they say, oh, hey, I used to watch your videos because I've been doing it for a long time. It's not like a thing that I should be ashamed of. Right. It's just that like, I'm doing it for a long time. And so like the average person who's seen my videos doesn't watch them anymore because lots of people have come in and out over the years. Yeah. The I used to listen to your show or I used to watch your videos is is uh is really it's a weird thing cuz it's but it that's an amazing compliment, but it also feels mildly crappy. Uh like you didn't have to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could yeah. have said I love your show and then you wouldn't it's not it's not dishonest yeah. and also I don't know that you stopped. Yeah. Um and I, I completely get it too. Cause like uh, the other thing is, is that like, if you say, I love your show, you know, there's always the worry that somebody is going to be like, Oh, what did you think about uh, the newest episode where we did this? And you're like, Oh, I bet it was great. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. But no, it, it it's uh yeah. I mean, I kind of about a year in, I started thinking a little bit about that. Cause we were, you know, a year in, we had 24, 25 episodes of night Vale. I'm like, that's manageable, you know, and, and those 25 or so episodes kind of told one long story about Cecil mm-hmm. and Carlos. And so like, that makes sense. And so, you know, each kind of year there, there, there tends to be, although it's n- not always, but it, there tends to be kind of one year long arc that's happening within that. Um, you know, the, the way we manage is we just keep doing it. And one of the things we've done a little bit more is kind of take some of those bigger story arcs and condense them into, say, like three-part episodes. Um, you know, and so we label the episode of The Mudstone Abyss Part 1. And in the liner notes, tell them it's Part 1 of 3. And so they kind of know, right. um, like, okay, well, I haven't listened to this show for a while, so I feel like I could probably jump in on these three-parters. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Excuse me. Uh, that yeah, it kind of gives people a, a a cue to say, well, yeah, this feels like a good spot to jump in on. Uh, but for the mm-hmm. most part, I, we do get asked from time to time about like, I've never listened to your show. Like, where is like a hundred and some odd episodes? Like, where would I even jump in? Should I start at the beginning? And I usually say, like, listen, if you are a completist uh, and you like the show, that's mm-hmm. an awesome place to start. But I think it's like moving to a new town. It's a radio show. You move to a new town and you watch the local news or you turn on uh, the radio show or you start at a new church or whatever. Like, here's a whole bunch of people you don't know. And it's going to take you a couple weeks uh, to get to know them. But you'll be on your feet in no time and it'll be fun. As a, uh, you know, a human who creates content for other people, for other humans to consume, though, I always have a very hard time not comparing my current views or consumption or feedback with my previous you know, like whatever metrics I was using. Is there a piece of you that gets caught up in that? I used to be a lot more obsessed with that. Nowadays, I'm not as much. Uh, Partially, it's because of the changing standards. And I don't know how YouTube has been. But at least in the podcast side, you know, we we changed over from Libsyn to PRX's platform when when we moved to PRX. And, um, you know... I just don't bother myself with it as, as much, uh, you know, because I, I feel like I'm, I, I want to concentrate more on, on the making of the, the art of things. And some of the numbers that I will concentrate on tend to be more of the business numbers. You know, if, if ad sales are down, that, that seems to be right. a thing I can affect more directly by talking with mm-hmm. the ad selling people 
or, you know, or just strategizing of like, well, can we do something with surveys or can we do something with, uh, can we talk to an advertiser about a potential advertiser? It, you know, there's certain things you can do to kind of pump things up. Ticket sales for live shows are things you can kind of do a little to pump mm-hmm. things up. You know, getting numbers up for listens or downloads of a show, that's a little bit more of a long con, right? <laughs> like it's it's a lot more just constant social media presence uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and you really do you do require tipping points in there, not to be Malcolm Gladwell on you, but you do require moments where something tips the balance to where just a whole bunch more people suddenly want to be listening to yeah. you. Yeah, I was a really, I remember that time. It was a, an amazing era on Tumblr when suddenly I was seeing lots of references to this weird surrealist <laughs> podcast. And I was like, what is that? And then I listened to my first episode and I was like, oh God, I love it. I love the internet so much. How does this exist? And and coming in and having, and like you say, you were very external to what podcasts were then. And I think that that is oftentimes the thing that works best is like, yeah, like the safest path is going to be the one where it's like, I'm a comedian or radio show host and I am joining all these other comedians and radio show hosts. But the thing that actually changes a medium and the thing that actually like uh, has a chance of getting that buzz is something that's very, very different. And taking your experience in theater and uh, and your writing collaboration with somebody who uh, you meshed very well with and making it into uh, something that had never been done before worked out well. And thank you for doing it. Well, thank you for saying that. And I'm really appreciative that it did work out well. It's uh, I don't know that I can recreate that or no. write down how to do that. Uh, but yeah, yeah something yeah. Reg- yeah. something resonated, and I'm I'm just it's such a fun full time job to have. Thank you very much for chatting with me, a Jeffrey Craner. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Hank, and I'll see you in uh, I'll see you in January. I'll do a podcast. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Thanks for listening to this ICG Creator Chat. If you like what you heard, please leave us a rating on iTunes so that we know what you thought of all the things that you listened to. It also helps bring new people to the podcast and spread this knowledge that we have even further. We would also love to hear from you at IC Guild on Twitter and at Internet Creators Guild on Facebook and Medium. The Internet Creators Guild was created by and for creators who believe that making stuff on the internet is one of the very best jobs. We aim to bring together internet creators to make their profession more sustainable and work towards that mission through education, community building, and advocacy. You can find out more and get involved at internetcreatorsguild.com. The ICG Creator Chat Podcast is produced by Marianne Fernandez-Silva and ICG's Executive Director, Anthony DeAnne. Angelo. It's edited by Eric Schneider. Special thanks go to our board of directors and our advisory board. Thank you all for listening and keep creating.